and welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me tonight is Morgana. And we're welcoming Dr. Russell Jones. He is a researcher with the Bigfoot Field Research Organization. He is also an author. He has written Tracking the Stone Man, West Virginia's Bigfoot. And more recently, The Appalachian Bigfoot has come out. He is a native of Vinton County, which is one county over from where I live. And he also spends time in West Virginia, which is where I grew up. So he's kind of like a homeboy. Good to meet you finally. Hey, thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. We're happy to have you. It's very exciting. Very, very exciting. Because I, of course, saw Tracking the Stone Man about a year ago, year and a half ago. And I was like, oh, the West Virginia Bigfoot. And then you open it up by talking about your childhood in Vinton County. And I was like, whoa, so cool. So yeah, tell us a little bit about your background and how all this started for you. So my family, um, I'm originally from Lancaster, Ohio, which is just north of Athens and Vinton County. But my family is all from Vinton County and Athens County. And um, I grew up in one of the original outdoors families from Vinton County that, you know, we coon hunted, we trapped, we rabbit hunted, we deer hunted, we ginseng hunted. We were in the woods continuously and all the time year round. And I was fortunate. I didn't even know that I was in that family, you know, because I was just raised that way. And people for, would drive from all over to try our, to buy our dogs and, they would always drive by my grandfather's house to see how many deer we had killed on the first day of deer season. And we were all woodsmen and outdoorsmen. And um, I was a young man taking this guy out on New Year's Day rabbit hunting. And um, New Year's Eve, we'd gotten about four inches of snow. New Year's Day it was a beautiful sunny day. I call it a bluebird day. And it was in the 20s. And I came along this hillside on Route 50, where you guys know it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, up on this hillside, there was a cave up there. And um, it went back maybe 50 feet or so, but not one that you could really tell unless you were literally on top of it. But I'd been in it before because my dogs had probably chased something in there. Or maybe I had traps in there at one point. And um, I found a footprint that was very fresh, a whole line of them that had came out of the cave and down the hillside and then went up a point and disappeared. And at that point I didn't know anything about Bigfoot. Um, the gentleman that was with me knew nothing about Bigfoot. We thought that it was maybe some type of vagrant or somebody that uh, was doing drugs or something because, you know, they were barefooted. It was very crystal clear that they were barefooted and you could see the toes and all the impressions and so I went up and looked in there because I expected there to be a, you know, a fire or some clothes or something, but there was nothing like that. And I remember him and I talked about it for a little bit and then we just went on just unsure of what it was. Then later that year, about maybe three miles cross country from there, there was a beaver dam that my family had found when we were fishing and I had set turtle hooks back there to catch snapping turtles and we had fished a lot and we hunted some back there and uh, I had never had anything happen back there at all. And I was back there with my uncle. We were both wearing pistols. It's a very snaky place. And we were quietly fishing, not talking. 
And the part of the dam I was standing on, the creek bank on the other side was maybe uh, 40 yards away. And I heard something coming down that bank. And I glanced over at my uncle and I saw he was looking too. I just assumed it was probably a deer. But then we started hearing this very loud monkey-like screaming and shaking of the branches. And it lasted for about 20 seconds. And of course, that's really very typical Bigfoot behavior um, that you commonly hear about. But of course, we knew nothing about it. And I asked him, what, I said, what do you think that is? And he's like, just look for a tree and get to it. It has to come across water. But after 20 seconds, it quit. And then we just kept fishing. I mean, you know, we were raised that you weren't afraid of anything in the woods. Everything was more afraid of you than it. And we weren't worried about it. Later that year, I saw Leonard Nimoy had a show called In Search Of, and he had an episode called In Search of Bigfoot. And it made me suspicious. And in that meantime, shortly thereafter, before I went to Indiana for the first four years of college, I had found a couple footprints um, in that general area. And so then, you know, I was there and then I went on to doctor school. I was in Iowa five years. And then uh, after I graduated, I, I moved to Charleston, West Virginia and began my practice there. And, and uh, I had in the meantime, while I was practicing, I became a certified master naturalist and was still reading Bigfoot books, literally everything that came out. And the granddaddy and the largest Bigfoot conference of them all is the Ohio Bigfoot conference. Largest one in the world. I was just there, I don't know, three weeks ago, maybe. And it was 5,000 people there that weekend. You know, all the hotels everywhere sold out within 60 miles. And um, Jeff Meldrum, the anthropologist was speaking and he'd written a book. And so I just wanted to hear him talk. At that point there was like, you know, this is like, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago, there was maybe 300 people there. It wasn't as big a deal as it is now. I didn't know anybody. And um, so I listened to him speak, talked to him for a few minutes. And then when I was driving back, I was talking to a friend on the phone and she said, well, what'd you think? And I said, well, you know, there was, there were some interesting people there, you know, some different people. And she's like, well, I don't want to be mean, Russ, but, you know, I mean, this is a Bigfoot thing. (laughs) She meant. And so when I got home, I had Googled Bigfoot. And if you do that, a lot of times the BFRO.net comes up, which is Bigfoot Research Organization, the largest scientific group in the world doing Bigfoot research. And Uh, It's in North America. So uh, at that time, there was maybe 100 people in the group, doctors, scientists, rangers, police officers, firefighters, lawyers, just different people from different skill sets. And um, now there's maybe since the TV show came on here, you know, what is it, seven or eight years ago that Finding Bigfoot was on that um, we've added some. But I, uh, I saw that about 10 times a year across the country, they have an expedition where you can pay like 500 bucks and you get interviewed. So they make sure you're serious about it and you sign a non-disclosure and then you show up. And so I did all that and I thought, I'm just going to go. And if they're weird, I'm leaving. And I went Practical. a wonderful group of people, men and women alike. And at that time, Matt Moneymaker, which is the star of the show, Finding Bigfoot, uh, the lawyer that started the group um, was going to all the expeditions and Matt and I just hit it off. 
and have been friends ever since. And from that time, I've been doing the reports for Ohio and West Virginia for the group. Um, back then, I was probably the only one that was really working on them. And now there's like um, several people that do them. I mainly concentrate in Ohio in the southeast portion only because uh, that's really all I care about is, say, from Fairfield County, you know, down to the river and then probably the, you know, the majority of West Virginia. Right. And um, so I've been doing that ever since. And about uh, eight or nine years ago, one of my patients came in and this fall will be my 31st year. You know, I've seen over 200,000 patient visits. And uh, so my patients, you know, know me well because I've been there a long time and they all know that I'm interested in Bigfoot. They're all very interested in that and want to talk a lot about it. And um, so this guy brought me this book and it was called Bigfoot in West Virginia or something like that. And he's like, do you know this guy? And I was like, no. And kind of in Bigfoot world, all of it, it's a small world. So everybody that's very, very active, we generally all know each other across the country. And so I looked at this book and it was like, he had an introduction chapter and a conclusion chapter. But other than that, it was just reports that I had published in his book. Oh, oh, yeah. And I thought, well, this isn't cool, you know, so that's really not cool. No. And uh, so, you know, I had talked to some lawyer patient about it. And he's like, you know, how much money is this guy making on Bigfoot book? And, you know, by the time that you, you know, talk to him, blah, 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 blah. So I just didn't worry about it. But that's what got me started writing the first book, um, which was Tracking the Stone Man. And Stone Man is, you know, there was five Indian tribes that were native to the Appalachia area. And three of the five had names for Bigfoot. And Stone Man was one of them. And I just chose that particular name for the book because I liked it. And, you know, we don't really know why they chose Stone Man. Um, you know, they're known to throw rocks at people. Um, not like big ones trying to hit people, but generally smaller pebbles like things. They may throw big ones, but they're usually like not at people. They may be in the water, or, you know, above them or whatever it happens to be. And, and some people think that they tend to be ridge walkers and they're up high on hills, you know, so maybe it's that. And some people believe that it's because they're so well camouflaged that it's kind of hard to see them. So we're really not sure where that came from beyond that. And I wrote that book and um, I want to say the last time the publisher told me it's over 5,000 copies. So it did really well. And then um, I wanted to do something on all of Appalachia, you know, like the Appalachia that we did from like the, um, when the federal government did the war on poverty right? states, like, you know, parts of Pennsylvania, parts of Ohio, you know, that type of thing. And I released it, the publisher released it in December. It was 17 weeks, number one on Amazon. And uh, it's still doing really well and staying in the top couple of books all the time right now. I mean, so it's been really exciting that people are so interested in Bigfoot. And I'm really not even sure whether it's because it stayed high so long that maybe some people started to buy it just to see what it was all about. Right. Sent me messages that I know that, are really, you know, you'd be shocked at like the think that they would be really interested in Bigfoot, but for whatever reason, you know, people are interested in it. And usually people will think that uh, they're interested in Bigfoot until they meet me 
and then they think that they're not that interested in it. Because, you know, I'm in the woods, you know, like three days a week. And then usually every other month I would take a whole week and be in the woods for that whole week. And I usually do one podcast a week and I usually talk to at least one witness a week. So it's a time consuming thing. I'd say that I do something Bigfoot every single day and I'm just as passionate about it now as what I was all those years ago. But it's interesting when I was young and those experiences happened to me um, when you're an outdoorsman and you have something you just can't explain, you just, you know, you just feel this need to know it. You just want to know what happened. And it's interesting still back where I got screamed at at that beaver dam. Probably I was there probably two months ago, but at least two or three times a year, um, I'm, I feel the need to go there and I'll walk in about sunset and just sit for an hour or so and listen. I've never heard anything else there. Never had anything happen. Um, it looks different now. The beaver dam is no longer there and there's a four wheeler path for gas wells that are there. When I was there, there was no paths or anything like that. Um, so that was my long winded version of how we got to where we are. It's a, it's a good origin story. <laughs> it is. It is. And I love the story with you and your uncle. You know, you get screamed at, there's trees shaking, and then yeah. you just go back to fishing. And I was like, yep, that's just like my family. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you know, What's we that? Do, we do I don't different. know. <laughs> What's that? I don't know. We'll just, we'll just keep doing that. Yeah, I can mm. remember when uh, my grandfather and I, we would be in the most remote sections of Ohio and they would be in Vinton County. And on a couple of occasions, you know, Bigfoots, uh, we believe, make a noise, a wood knock. And no one's really sure whether, you know, something's hitting a tree or whether it's a hand clap because, uh, you know, some of the orangutans, the mountain gorillas will hand clap, you know, like when they're mm -hmm. upset with their kid or whatever it happens to be, they'll make that noise. And you can imagine that you've heard people that can clap really loud and imagine yeah. something that larger Cup hand. Your hand really loud. And then uh, some of the mountain gorillas will mouth pop. And, you know, mm -hmm. some of those are really loud too. And so you're not sure. It's hard to believe that Bigfoot's walking around with a stick or whatever it happens to be to hit a tree every time. And no one's really witnessed that behavior of all the reports across the country. And then just inside our group, there's over 50,000 reports since 1993. You know, of course, probably 90% of them are misidentifications and, um, you know, just not that people are trying to hoax you, but they just believe that they saw something and they probably didn't do it or they probably didn't hear, you know, what they thought that they heard. Um, yeah. but there are legitimately 5,000 quality reports inside the group, you know, and I always say, if you took the top, top couple hundred, and these would be, um, crystal clear daytime sighting reports with a very reliable witness. For instance, like when I started doing reports, I thought there might be something, but I wasn't sure. It seemed more reasonable to me that it would be in the Pacific Northwest. And the reason why we think that is because, you know, we had the Bering Strait between Russia and um, Alaska and that was 10 to 20,000 years ago. And so everything in North America, unless something came by boat, came through the Bering Land Bridge. 
And so when we look at the critters that are over there, we have two in particular we're interested in. One is Gigantopithecus, which is the largest ape. Um, you know, there was around a million of them. We have bones from them, you know, a couple jaw bones, around a thousand teeth. It's about the size of what a Bigfoot would be. It makes sense that we crossed over the bridge. Most reports, Washington, Oregon, California are one, two, and three. You know, then Ohio is four. So, you know, where do we get that at? But, you know. He walked a real long time. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then in Africa, we have something called Paranthropus, which essentially is a Bigfoot, but it's just a little shorter, maybe four or five feet tall. But the problem is Africa's a long ways to get to the Bering Land Bridge. We don't really have bones in that transit area where it would need to go through at this point. Um, but of course, it could be something that's in that family or we don't recognize yet or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. always wondered if it wasn't a relic hominid too. Yeah. You know, that's a um, a broad term. That, it is a very broad term. Yeah, so Giganta or Paranthropus would be a relic hominoid. And um, and it, so I think that essentially it would be safer to say that than for me to say to you, it could be Giganto, it could be Paranthropus or whatever. And it would be more likely to be something broad. But I think that it's fair to say that it's probably something that came from Asia. That makes most sense. Um, it makes it easier than what we would have. But I can remember, um, you know, my grandfather, once again, you know, I started that story and I got off on a tangent there, but um, hearing those wood knocks, of course, I didn't know what that was. Um, and we would be, you know, we didn't have as funny in the seventies, there was no good headlights. We didn't yeah. have things like that. So we were using a carbide light. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's like, you know, has these little rock crystals of carbide down inside. It's like a miner's lamp and you pour water from it and gas goes out this little reflective thing and you light it. And it's like, sometimes you're wearing it on your head, but usually you're carrying it like that. So it's like a little candle. And of course that means that the people behind can't see like me and I'm following my grandpa. And yeah. he sticks. You know, it's cold because you're coon hunting. So it's, you know, in the fall and the winter and the sticks are smacking your face and you're mad yeah. at your grandpa because he's killing you off and, uh, <laughs> and you had one good flashlight that, you know, had a battery you like screwed on and had a rope you had made over your shoulder, but you didn't turn it on because you only wanted to turn it on when there was a coon up a tree because, you know, if otherwise you didn't have ability to do it, but yeah. you know, we had no protein bars or snacks or anything like that. We had a cellar that had a bunch of apples in it. And we'd grab as many apples as we could fit in our pocket, which would be like four or five. And so many times you'd be sitting in Selesky, miles from the nearest road, eating an apple in the dark, just waiting for your dogs to bark. And on occasion, I can remember hearing those wood knocks and asking Grandpa what that was. And, and, uh, and he was, like I said, just renowned in that area. And he'd say that way down the hollow, somebody slams a car door and the sound comes up the hollow and it sounds funny and that's what it is. But he didn't know and neither did I. Yeah. And many, many times I wish that I could go back and, um, you know, and talk to him about whether it was a possibility. I can remember the biggest reports that came out of Vinton County and that part of the state were in 1980 on Route 50. There used to be a roadside rest called Hooper Park that was there and uh, this gentleman was 
deer hunting and had seen a couple of Bigfoot, apparently like a family group. And he had shot at one and had wounded and there was blood and people came down. And there was like a hundred people that came down from Columbus and they circled this portion of Selesky and walked in. And I mean, it was a big deal and it was in the newspapers and everything nationally. And I remember asking grandpa about it. And he said that um, he just thought it was a bear. And of course, bears are rare. Mm-hmm where we yep. all are from, you know, there's about a hundred resident bears in Ohio now, but back then, I mean, rarely, it would be really something to, you know, hear about a bear being around and really still is. There's a couple of sightings in Selesky of bears now, but it's just not common for us to see them. Um, but uh, Oh, how I wish I could go back. You know, he, all that time he was in the woods literally almost every day and just say, you know, was there ever a time that you ever saw something or you saw a big track or, you heard a noise or you felt like something was watching you, you know, just to have a, you know, an inclination of where to go to look, to spend time. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you have, you know, the right questions basically to ask a witness like your grandpa would have been. Yeah. You know, but for the lot of the time that I started doing this, I was ambulance chasing. I would be anywhere from the high mountains of West Virginia over to, say Lancaster, anytime a report came in, I was there in person. Um, if it was a pretty good report and I would have game cameras, you know, that's kind of what I'm known for. I have over 40 game cameras out and they were all over these places. And, you know, but what I found out was that you're better served to choose a couple places that you can get to and that you can spend a lot of time in rather than being just all over the place. And so that's what I do now. You know, Selesky is one of my places I'll go to commonly. I'm, I'll go at Strauss and just walk around if I have a little time or something, or, you know, not that much time um, because my farm is in Athens. You know, I kind of live right in between Selesky and um, Strouds run. And I have probably 15 cameras in Selesky. And probably, I don't know, four or five in another couple places, but then another 20 or so, whatever's left in places in West Virginia. And it's been interesting because um, now that I'm doing them in one place, I get a better sense and a better feel for the game that's in the area, how they move. Mm -hmm. You know, I leave the cameras in place for at least a year at a time. So, um a lot of times working with the park rangers in these remote sections that they're never in, you know, I'll stop in person periodically and they know who I am and I'll tell them, you know, Hey, between King hollow and Waterloo, there's no trails over there. The backpacking trail just goes through a little portion of it. And I'll say, well, that big hollow right there, there's nobody in there from May to October. You had two bow hunters, you had three gun hunters, you know, the gun hunters killed an eight point and a doe. And that was the only deer that were taken out of there this year. Twice so far, I would tell different parks. I would send them a picture of wild boar that they didn't know that they had in certain areas and tell them that they had them send a picture and send coordinates, uh, commonly finding um, hobo camps. I don't know whether maybe they're growing pot you know, and somebody's living way back in or whatever. And then once they collect the pop, they just leave everything, you know, so that, um, 
you know, you get an idea of who's in this area. I send two or three different times. I've um, found pot and had one game camera, the person, people that were going to it and would, you know, be in touch with the law enforcement in that area or the Rangers, whoever's uh, in charge of it. And then just this past year, I got a couple pictures of the same people, but in a different area. So I'd let the Ranger know, okay, now they're over in this area. So you might want to check this area a little more, whatever. So it's, you know, it's interesting. And when you do that, you're establishing a relationship. So, you know, at first you may go into Clear Creek, which is a part of the Metro Park system. And uh, it's a preserve. You're only allowed one trail. Because you're a master naturalist, you can go in and say you're going to study how many bobcats they have or how are your neighbors affecting your resident deer population. And it gives you access to that area that other people don't have. Right. And once they spend time with you and recognize that you're sincere and you're taking serious what you're doing and you're using a scientific approach, they commonly are open to it and they'll tell you places that you know, might be a good place to, to check or they'll tell you about, uh, you know, I've had um, two different rangers tell me that they had sightings and another ranger tell me that she had heard the wood knocking noise. I had a, uh, one day I was driving down this park road and it was just wide enough that, you know, two trucks could get past. You kind of had to like get over like a lot yeah. of in Athens and Benton County. And, and uh, I saw it was a forest service truck. And so, we stopped and I asked him what he was up to and I didn't know him. And he said that uh, Ohio state was doing a study on rattlesnakes and they had found two rattlesnake dens in that area. And he was checking on them. And um, I said, that's cool. And he asked me what I did. And I told him I was a chiropractor and so are you the chiropractor does all that Bigfoot stuff. I'm like, (laughs) and so he put his car or his truck in park. And he said, let me tell you, he said, I've, I've been to colleges for 16 years for the forest service. I have my PhD. And he said, uh, seven times in those 16 years, I've been places where I knew no one else would be or could be. And I've heard those wood knocks. And, you know, I said, definitely know there's, there's something to it. It's not a natural thing. And I do believe that, you know, something's probably out there. And we started talking about bones and, you know, he's like, you know, there's 500 something thousand deer in, in Ohio. I mean, you know, we find deer bones, but we don't find them like we should find them. You know, there should be a yeah. lot of deer bones yeah. that are out there. And, uh, but in general, you know, when it comes to bone, I you know one time I spoke um, and the speech was just on where are the bones. Um, and it's just rare for us to find predator bones. You know, we don't generally find, um, for instance, bobcat is something I always name, but just a few months ago, I found a dead bobcat in the woods. And that was the first time I'd ever had that. But I always would, you know, would say bobcat or, you know, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of coyotes in each of these states, maybe not hundreds of thousands, but over a hundred thousand. And, you know, we don't commonly see dead coyotes of natural causes. You know, we may see them hit on the road or a hunter kills one or whatever, but to be so many animals, you would expect there to be, you know, us finding some. Mm-hmm. I like that. Well, I mean, a lot of people don't understand or know, but uh, rodents will eat bones. Yes. And they, they, you know, squirrels, you know, everybody thinks squirrels, oh, cute little guys, they eat nuts. They're really friendly. They don't do anything. Yeah, they'll eat bones and, and mess them up. 
Deer <laughs> will eat bones. Yes, yep. they will. The mama's so, you know, make calcium. It's rare. You know, let's face it. I mean, this week, well, it wasn't this week. It was just hit the news this week. There's a hunter in West Virginia that found a skull from a giant sloth. Oh, wow. I saw that. Yeah, so it's 10,000 years old. So it's been laying here in West Virginia on some hillside. And it took all this time. And some guy finally bumped into that. But if it would have been like the leg bone, you know, if it was around, he probably wouldn't have, you know, kept it or been interested in it. But as it is, you know, whenever we see, if we'd see a giant skull that looked like a human, Certainly, oh, we all pick you it would up. Grab so, that up and be like, "Look what I found!" Yeah, exactly. But as it is, <laughs> come no, running out of the woods with that in your backpack and be exactly. like, "Everybody, come check this out!" And there, yep. and there's been actually one historically that was found in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and it was turned into the USC anatomy department and disappeared. No one knows where it's at. Of course. Yeah, yeah. and it's like that. You know, uh, if you if you follow some of the giant things that are around, I don't necessarily believe those are related to Bigfoot, but you know, some of the people that were here, here before us were very large. And, um, you know, there's pictures of whole towns standing with these skeletons and bones mm-hmm. in the 1800s and early 1900s. And now all we have is the pictures. Yeah. yeah. Some people to believe that, you know, that they were destroyed because somehow it would argue, it would hurt the creation argument you know, however that would be. And, um, you know, but we just don't have them. Are they in the Smithsonian, which has, you know, however many blocks and blocks of bones and boxes. And it's just, probably. but that's suspect, my feeling is, is, yeah, is there, there hidden probably somewhere. Some bones have been found historically and, um, you know, people, you know, just have turned them in or whatever it happens to be. And we don't have them. I mean, I could see them getting filed away in the early 1900s or late 1800s as you know unknown human or unknown ape and just put in a box and labeled neatly and then just forgotten about yeah oh yeah unless somebody's going to do a whole muse a whole museum-wide audit of what bones everybody has they might not turn up yeah there's Bad secretarial work can be blamed for many, many things. It doesn't have to be some sort of conspiratorial thing. I mean, right. they they supposedly dug up a couple of giant skeletons here in Athens County. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, back in They're the 19... 19- yeah. Yeah. there. Yeah. Back in the 1930s when they were digging up and, and building, what was it, County Road 24, Harmony yep. Road? I used to live on it. Yeah, there was a a mound there, and they dug it up, you know, because we're sensitive. We're just going to plow over that, and you know. (laughs) And they dug up a a giant skeleton. It was male, supposedly. And uh, I think it was eight other skeletons with him. And they said, oh, the big one's the chief. And they didn't know. And they called the Smithsonian, and they sent an anthropologist. And the bones got you know taken away and then they just sort of buried it all over and yeah yeah you know i'm i was recently i was interested i did not know this but one of my patients had brought me this um this article out of some journal and and it was saying that like if you you know and everybody from ohio you've all went down the west virginia turnpike but as soon as you leave charleston and you start the west virginia turnpike there on the mountainside on the right 
there was a stone wall that ran for eight miles and it had 20 foot towers there. Well, you know, the mining knocked everything down, but before then it was interesting. These kids were, you know, we don't have in this part of West Virginia, we don't have caves because we don't have limestone. Mm -hmm, Right. We have limestone in Southeast Ohio where, you know, all of us spend time, um, but not right here in West Virginia. And um, so, but we have rock cliffs, you know, from, uh, everywhere. And so these boys were up playing in these rock cliffs and there was this one spot that was kind of back in that was covered and you just couldn't see it. And when I got back there, there was this, um, big stone that was obviously not natural was square and they rolled it over. And there was this wooden block that was in there and it had like an engraving of kind of a woman holding a child. And so they brought it back and they, and they, showed it, you know, to the, some of the scientists and it's made its rounds. The Smithsonian's came and ironically it was Ivan Sanderson from the um, Smithsonian, which wrote their first Bigfoot book. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he came and they used a dentist to drill the wood to see how old it was. And it was 400 year old um, Cypress. And uh, so now it's in the museum here. And, it, and so I've been, I bought some older books um, on eBay that were from the 1800s, textbooks and stuff, trying to go back to the area to find out who it was. And, you know, and it, it came to be that there was people here before the Indians, not the Aztecs or that thing, even before them. And the Indians called them sun worshipers because they were very dark complected. And there's some people that believe by the writings and different things that may have been from people from like Syria that had made the trek by boat and then somehow came in. But um, they were apparently uh, very um, fierce warriors. But, you know, eventually they just disappeared. And, you know, the long and short, of, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, we don't really know a lot about who was here before us and, as much as we think we know, we, you know, we just find these things and, you know, like you guys are talking about that skeleton comes up and, you know, these things crop up, you know, for periodically from time to time. And, and I think, you know, we just have to take a step back and it's, I think it's pretty human for us to think that we know everything. And when I'm doing a, I did a radio show recently from new Orleans and another one, it was from Toronto and they were talking about, you know, well, it seems like if there was something like Bigfoot out there that we would probably know that, you know, somebody would have one or whatever it happens to be. And I always ask myself, like, who is someone? I mean, <laughs> no one's there. I mean, just like today, you know, from where I parked and I was in the woods three and a half hours to get way back in there and get out. You know, I never saw a person. I never saw a human track. It had been rainy the last several days. You know, I no one had been in there but me. And um, so, you know, we've never have had a time in our civilization where people are outdoors less. That yeah. they aren't familiar with the trees or the animals or they're afraid of getting lost and they're afraid of snakes. And, you know, people just are not out there more. You know, we have... more wilderness in Appalachia parts of Ohio and everything else than we did just in the 1930s where Mm -hmm. 
we're not farming as much. Some of that land's reverting now back into forest again. Um, and I think that there's a major perception across the country that humans are everywhere. And, you know, there's just a lot of space for things to be and places that where people commonly aren't. Yeah. Yeah. Th- those people didn't have grandparents that lived in Red House Ridge. Yeah. If they think people are everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Because I very, I, I very clearly, I grew up in West Virginia. I'm from Charleston, but my dad dated a woman from Putnam County and my grandparents lived in Red House. And um, I live in right Oak, across- so I'm not far from Red House. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and just, there are people on that ridge. Yeah. Plenty of people, more than there were when I was a kid. But, you know, aside from the across the street neighbor, it's a quarter mile to the next house. Yeah. Yeah. And then past that house, it's a half a mile to the next house. And there's plenty of woods that people just don't go into. Unless you're hunting. If there's something like a Bigfoot around, part of its existence would be, I mean, it, you know, of course, it's a species, so you have baby ones and you have adult ones. But on average, you know, they're larger than humans, so they would take more food than we would need. So mm-hmm. food would be food and cover would be the primary issues for it. And so it would have learned where humans aren't, where humans don't go, um, where the food is. You know, so in my mind, it's like, you know, they don't probably migrate. They just move through a range you know, maybe that range is, you know, you know, maybe 500 square miles, something like that. So, you know, they're over here at uh, Dr. Jones's farm. He has a pond. He has a lake. He's really strict. He doesn't let anybody on his land. It's heavily posted. Then there's, you know, old grandma Brooks and she has this apple orchard. She doesn't let anybody on her land. And then there's this other family that has this enormous garden that's out this time of the year. And then there's, you know, there's these different things and they're just following yeah. along. Mm-hmm. But Do how I even know that is, you know, it have to, they'd have to use deer because, you know, that would be in the winter. One, you know, what else, unless you're dumpster diving, are you going to get, and there's not that much food. There's some fungus and mushrooms that you can eat, but it still, it takes a lot if you're a big animal. And, um, so I think that, uh, that's probably, you know, how it moves along or how it goes. That's just my guess, of course, because no one really knows. But it makes logical sense. And I mean, deer know this. Like even here in town, like the deer know when the community gardens go up, and yes. they know who gardens where and when, and they travel because yeah. they know it's easy calories. Yeah. And no offense to deer, but they're not the brightest bulbs. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Bigfoot would probably be our closest relative. So certainly would have, you know, intelligence enough to be able to sort it out some of those things. I mean, we're talking about something that, you know, is exceptionally rare, you know, like maybe in all of North America, you know, say a number would be somewhere between, you know, I'm going to say 4,000 and 20,000 which sounds like a large number, but once you start breaking it down into states, like, you mm-hmm. know, Ohio may have like 125, which you start breaking it down into the counties, you know, maybe there's like a family group in Athens County, a family group or two in Vinton County, 
some counties wouldn't have any because they're just too urban. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's not a very good chance. I mean, if you've ever lost your coon hound because it was chasing a deer or something, it's hard to find your dog. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, when it's, when it's out and about. So it's not always easy, um, you know, just to find something that's, that's not trying to hide from you, let alone something that, you know, is generally curious of you, but, you know, is leery of you. Yeah. I have a slightly strange question. Um, okay. You think they use tools? No. Okay. I've always wondered that because there are so many of the great apes do. Yeah. They don't make the tools. They use something yeah, like as a tool. Chimps yeah. just found are using sticks for different things like to spear fish or, you know, to chase things and things like that. Um, and they use you know them as clubs or whatever. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the lineage and whatnot, Homo erectus was the, you know, the really the dividing line between tool usage and not tool usage. So mm-hmm. we haven't seen any evidence of that. I found one time uh, where something in the middle of nowhere had been busting beech nuts open on a rock. So, you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. a, not really a cultural enough thing to say a tool, but you know what I mean? Like it had intelligence enough to break it right. up. But of course we see other animals, birds and stuff, you know, raising up in the air and dropping things or whatever. Yep. Do Crows are really so, good at it. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that they, would do that, but I think that they have evolved in a sense that they commonly will use human waste type things like the trash cans, the dumpsters, um, as a way for them to secure easy food. Um, one of the yeah. things, um, you know, that I always talk about is in, in a way of finding a Bigfoot or an area that might be good for one, you know, it's not helpful in Appalachia for us to say deer because we would think it's weird if we drove past a field in the evening and there wasn't a deer or two in it. Yeah. Generally they're <laughs> everywhere, but you know, if there's a sighting, I'm always wanting to know, you know, what is it that's unusual in that area that they would be going to trying to find, is it somebody's house? Is it their, you know, whatever it is, I always call it a treat food that they're looking for those certain things that aren't readily available the whole year that are just available at a certain time of year that would be, you know, kind of like us. We like, you know, when watermelons ripe, we're like all about watermelon or whatever. Of course, I understand now we can get it most of the year, but in general, you know, we're eating berries in the summer. That would be a treat. Um, You know, those orchards are ready a certain time of the year. That would be a treat that would be unusual. Um, And then I talk about a perch, which is, um, I look on maps in an area that's like that humans frequent, say like choose a park like Stroud's Run or Burr Oak and choose a you know, place along a creek or a place along a lake that has an access that hunters or fishermen would commonly go to. They might fish from there all the time. And there's a picnic bench there and a trash can, but there's woods there, you know, deep woods where something could be. And in my mind, they would be similar to like a large buck that we have a lot of in Southeastern Ohio, really beautiful, huge bucks, world-class that, you know, these bucks are back in these places where humans don't go. They're just in a bed all the time, unless the rut's in or something. But as it gets closer to evening, they're moving further and further toward where the food, the deer, 
the does are, the fields. But they don't usually go out there most of the time until dark. And I imagine these animals doing the same thing. You know, they creep into that area. And I call it a perch because, you know, I haven't imagined them sitting there looking down on where the humans are and waiting for the humans to leave so they can go and, you know, dig through the trash cans. I pay attention to that, like today when I was out and um, where was it at? Uh, at Stroud's Run, there was a trash can along in one place one time that, you know, I'd found this perch. So if you find this trash can or a dumpster or something, it's kind of in a remote location. Then you look around and see, you know, on a map you can use one X or whatever it happens to be and see whether or not there's an area that could hold something like that. And then, you know, you can step back into woods a little bit. And you may find a tree that sits a couple hundred yards back where something could get behind and watch. And sometimes you can find things like stock, stacked rocks or a bunch of little stick breaks where something was just standing there piddling around and breaking some of the limbs or whatever it happens to be. Um, yeah. You know, so you can, if you get good at it, you can have an idea before you even go to a park of two or three locations that might hide that or find that. And you can go there and sometimes you won't find it active when you go there, but sometimes you can find stuff and it kind of gives you a starting point to go from. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. I also really appreciate the concept of treat foods because to me, it always made more sense that Bigfoot would move around seasonally just because to me, it was always this thought of, okay, where are you going to hide something that big in the woods for that long? What's it going to eat? Mm -hmm. It can't go to the farmer's market, Yeah, but there's plenty of food. It would, you would just have to eat and hunt on a seasonal scale, which almost all animals do anyway. Hunter gatherers do that. Yeah. Hunter. They don't necessarily stay in the same exact spot. They you have a circuit go, that they go. Yeah. yeah. So it made sense that Bigfoot would do that. And it makes, I think, treat foods do help explain why we people see them in orchards. Yeah. People see them in vegetable gardens. People see them in dumps and in berry bushes and all these other places. And it makes perfect sense because I would want to eat apples and candy wrappers that still had chocolate on them and things like that if most of the year I was living on, like, yeah. raw deer meat. Yeah, can you <laughs> imagine how, like, if you were at um, a firing range that's in a state forest and there's a dumpster there and you pull out a McDonald's thing and somebody's just, like, pulling the extra bread off their bun or whatever and then mm-hmm. just pull it in there. I mean, you know, it would be really really sweet to something oh yeah out in nature and you don't even have to fight with bees over it yeah that was the other thing i was wondering as i was reading your your uh second book where you listed the foods i was like i wonder if anybody has had their uh beehives knocked over and assumed it was a bear and maybe it wasn't you know i really uh i hadn't really thought about that now until you said it but i have not had any reports, you know, in nature, when I was doing my uh, master naturalist thing, we were trained that there was no wild bees left in nature, except for in people's hives largely. Although I know that there is a uh, hive for the last four years near where my farm is in the woods that every, I see, I check on every year and it's still there. So I'm sure there 
there's still some around that things are finding or whatever it happens to be. But maybe like Morgana said, you know, maybe there's just easier ways to get it now. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, all the kids that, um, you know, when you go to Stroud's Run, for instance, and it's not a large park, but, you know, it's like everywhere else in Southeast Ohio. I mean, there's woods that go for miles and it's thick. You can't really see very good. People are just on the trails. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a lot of students that are down there. A lot of times if it's a pretty day, mm-hmm. uh, you know, eating and camping, you know, doing all their stuff or whatever. And I think there's a lot of food to be had in places mm-hmm. like that or campgrounds all the time. Commonly, you know, you hear about um, Bigfoot coming through, sneaking off stuff, taking stuff out of coolers, you know, things like that. Yeah. Well, and I was camping up at Stroud's during hunting season um, in a campsite, not in the middle of the woods like a crazy person, <laughs> because yeah, you don't want to do that during hunting season. That's a bad choice at hunting season. Um, and I thought about the gut piles. Yeah. And how after dark, everything was going to come out for the gut piles. The buzzards came out during the day and the crows were out during the day. But yeah. you know, as soon as it got dark, that everything from raccoons, possums, to, raccoons. Possums, to coyotes to wild dogs would be all Foxes. up in that. Yeah, you and I wonder if Bigfoot would do the same thing. I mean, Probably. livers are rich in iron if something yeah. had a deficiency. Yeah, so in the 70s, when Matt Moneymaker, the lawyer, was doing reports, the one that he got interested in was his wife was a medical doctor, and one of her Mennonite patients had told her in passing that in a corner of one of his fields, he found all these dead deer laying there, and that it seemed weird how that they were killed. And so Matt was curious. He went over there with his wife, and... uh, the legs were broken. That's commonly what you hear is they'll snap a leg, I guess, to stop it or to slow it down. But the organ meats were what were taken. Mm-hmm. The heart, the kidneys were taken. And um, nothing else was taken from these animals. And that's why I got Matt, you know, his, his first really interest in it. And so, I mean, we only control the woods that we're in during the day. At night, mm-hmm. everything could be anywhere. And it's, com- it's commonly happens in Kentucky. I know there was a Bigfoot that had was recognizable because it had a scar on its chest. And one night it was seen two places, 12 miles apart. So, you know, I think they travel easily, the larger ones, because, you know, they're just moving along a lot quicker. Um, probably using, um, you know, not only paths, but, you know, right of ways, things like that are relatively long and straight and stay away from humans. Yeah. Things like that. But the gut piles, I mean, there's tons of deer that get wounded in Ohio Mm -hmm. during gun season, that type of thing. And, um, you know, not to mention the piles are laying around, but there's literally dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of reports of hunters that have killed something and have seen a Bigfoot take what they killed away. Yeah. Yeah. It's... It's almost like they farm us in a weird way, but not directly. They've just figured out, like, we can let them do all the work and we'll just shadow them off to the side and we'll eat their trash and we'll steal from their gardens and we'll snatch their kills and then melt away into the trees because they're better at woods than we are. (laughs) 
Well, it's hyenas do that with lions. Yeah. yeah. They they follow the lion pride. They watch the hunt. And if they can reach in and snag something, they will. Mm-hmm. If they can, you know, get the leavings, they'll do that. That's more likely what they do. But mm-hmm. if they can snatch something from a lion, they'll do it. Yeah. It seems so, natural. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we do if the if a captured one turns up or a body finally turns up? So I think that historically about every three years, one has been killed. You know, that's people telling a story. No one really knows if it's true or not true. Um, actually, there was a story I want to say in Idaho, there was two students from Ohio University in the 70s. They were out there hunting and thought that they were shooting at something else, you know, like an elk. And it was, they said a Bigfoot and that they killed it. It looked very human-like. They buried it and vowed that they would never tell anybody. And when one of the guys passed away, this is just about 10 years ago, the other guy came forward, went out there, couldn't find the spot. You know I mean? Of course, Woods, I can't even hardly find my game cameras one year later when I go back. (laughs) The woods change, it evolves, Mm -hmm. timber and and everything else. Um, You know, but I think that there historically has been... a hunters that have shot them. You know, I have interviewed three that had clear shots at them and did not shoot. And I'm sure that people have hit them with cars and trucks. And I suspect that, um, you know, that would be what it would look like. You know, one's going to get hit on the road. Someone's going to shoot one. I don't believe that, you know, commonly you hear like there's this black van that pulls up and the body disappears. <laughs> there's four. Yeah, I don't think that happens. And, you know, the Bigfoot come running out. The Bigfoot was horribly disfigured and scarred during the flame. And a government came, took the body away. And, you know, there's all these conspiracy theories. And I'm just not sure that, um, you know, any of that's probably realistic. But I think that um, it's not realistic for someone to catch capture one. Shoot, we can't even get a good picture. So, you know, I don't see, you know, any type of capture happening, but I expect it to be one of those things. I mean, I remember Grover Krantz, which um, he was the first scientist involved. He was an anthropologist at uh, Washington State University. He got interested because there was a dump in Washington that a bunch of people had had a Bigfoot sighting and there was tracks in the snow. And I forget, maybe over a thousand of them. And it had a crippled left foot and they called it cripple foot. And he became convinced it was impossible for someone to fake an actual injury like that, that, you know, was so anatomically correct. And, um, you know, so they have learned, like we were just talking about, to adapt and to change those things. And maybe somebody will shoot something one like that. I know um, some people believe the first one will be people are having experiences around their house, their livestock's being taken, their chickens, whatever it happens to be. And that maybe somebody will shoot one like that. Um, I suspect that when it comes out and we know that Bigfoot is real and it's accepted as a species, that everybody will be shocked at how much evidence will come out all at once. That, you know, we have hair that's identified, unidentified, and that is a type. And we have hundreds and hundreds of footprints 
that have been studied by anthropologists and people that are specialists that, you know, accept there's something different and fingerprints that are different than any other primate. Um, but when we have something like that, I think that, um, you know, it's going to be an interesting thing all the way around. Like Grover Krantz would have told you that if you killed one or if you found a dead one and you shot it to make sure that you reload, that was the first thing you should do because yeah. there's probably another one there. <laughs> and they're big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we don't know, right? I mean, there's, if they, they could bury their dead, they could, um, you know, who knows what they're doing. I mean, some other animals do that. Um, maybe it's possible that they're doing, but, you know, I did a talk one time one just trying to give an idea to people how rare it would be for one to happen. So, you know, I'd said that you know, let's just choose that there was around 5,000 of them as a reasonable number to guess, and that they would live about the same long lifespan as a normal higher primate. So say 40 or 50 years, and then every year you would have a 5% attrition. And so when you start dividing it out in the States, Ohio would have four dead, dead Bigfoot a year. So in the whole state of Ohio, mostly Eastern Ohio, you know, there's four animals that someone could find in there, you know, and if yeah. it happens in the summer and let's say that there's not another one around and they don't do anything like that. And it's just a normal animal, just in a matter of a few days, it would completely be spread apart and scavenged everywhere. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Everything would eat it. So it's just hard to imagine that, that we would find anything about it. And one of the things that made me even more sure about that is, you know, like I used to go out at night, like all the Bigfoot people do, but then I realized that people are just doing it because they want to have an experience. It's really not about evidence because any of the evidence we get at night, like there's some great thermal footage of Bigfoot, but science, the scientists aren't interested. They don't really no. care. And you make tracks <laughs> or something from something that was in at night, but really it's just about having an experience and I get that because I was there once too, but now I'm all during the day because, you know, I'm trying to get some really good video. I'm trying to find something I'm looking for. Anytime the buzzards are out there, you know, I'm, I'm interested in going there to see what's dead. But when I was at Salt Fork, you know, it was the largest gathering in the, probably in the world this year, 5,000 people interested in Bigfoot were there. And just a couple hundred yards from there were these buzzards circling. So you had this park that, it's probably the most renowned park in the whole world for Bigfoot. Tons of sightings come out of there. You have this, you know, conference. There's 5,000 people there. All these dumpsters are there. They're all full, I'm sure, of that. And so it's reasonable to think that if something would be there, it would be sneaking up there at night. And here's these buzzards circling. And did I ever see anybody all weekend walking down there to see what was dead? Nope. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> gosh, I mean... That would be the perf a greatest chance, right? I mean, greater than the other odds of finding something, but you know, no one was doing it. You know, yeah. there at the buzzards. You, you, you talk about Bigfoot to people, and it's about a third of the country believe in it. But in Appalachia, it can be fifty to seventy-five percent because most of those people have been around larger areas of woods and kind of recognize, like here in West Virginia and probably in Southeast Ohio, like every hunter that I would know either would have a story or something that could be Bigfoot related. May or may right, not. Yeah. You know, people accept that there's more things that we know in the woods is, is out there. Um, but, you know, Washington, DC, 
Chicago, New York, you know, all these people are saying, no, nah, I don't think Bigfoot. And you say, well, when's the last time you've even been in the woods or a quarter mile from the nearest road or trail? And, you know, most people aren't out there very much. They're living no. there. They're, you know, they're, they got kids, they got a job, they're getting their degrees, they're doing their stuff, you know? And so they may be interested in Bigfoot, but in terms of actually knowing the evidence that's out there or the type of people that are looking for it across the country, you know, they, they don't really know that stuff. They just have opinions. That's why a lot of times when you are doing some of the TV shows or some of the interviews that we do, you'll have people asking the same questions that were resolved for us 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Is there enough food for Bigfoot? Is there enough cover for Bigfoot? You know, why don't we find this or why don't we find that? When a lot of people have already worked through the science, you know, scientists and master naturalists and all these different types of people are already past it. But in the end, you know, you don't really have a body. I mean, there's a lot of videos that look compelling. You know, if you're on Facebook or Instagram, there's whole sites that are nothing but every day showing you new videos or different ones. And some of them I'm sure are real, but you know, you can't really trust anything anymore because of, you know, CGI and Photoshopping and different things like that. And certainly the public's not going to be like, I feel confident that if I got something on my game camera and I posted it, you guys would say, it's probably real. We know him. And, you know, we know, but the rest of the country would be saying, Oh, that's, you know, he's got, that's somebody out there, you know, that's, he doesn't know Dr. Russ Jones. This is like what he does. He knows what a ghillie suit looks like, y'all. That's what he knows. (laughs) That is one of the things I really liked about your book where you talked about the different things Bigfoot could eat. You know, because when I that Bigfoot can eat, you know, the 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 different wild foods. And then, you know, if you think about it, Ohio is just chock full of cornfields with woods right next to them. Yeah. Well, how hard is it to wait till dark and then just walk in and grab corn? It's not hard and at all. There is a case not from Ohio of the seven girls who had the Bigfoot come yelling out of the cornfield at night. Yeah. I remember and, that. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, you know, I would love it if some, if Bigfoot finally got proven because to me, it is the most rational part of the paranormal, if that makes any sense, because it's probably a flesh and blood creature. Mm-hmm. And that's so much more comforting than weird lights in the sky and ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd, um, I'd like it to be proven so we can make laws to keep people from shooting them once we that know too. that. that that seems to me, and I'd like the answer of, is it animal or is it human? What, what level of intelligence or sentience are we talking about? Uh, well, I think that it's, it's fair to say that the honest answer is we just don't know. Um, but they commonly, you know, look human mm-hmm. aside from, you know, there's certain things in terms of what you commonly hear when you do it all the time, and you take reports all the time, like, you know, you commonly hear that they have a human nose, but it's a little flatter, mm-hmm. and that there's wrinkles around the eyes, their skin on their face is like a dog's nose, mm-hmm. that's usually gray, black, 
maybe a dark tan. Um, occasionally you'll hear blue eyes. I've took two good reports, one in Athens County that was blue eyes. Yep. Um, but normally you would just hear dark eyes, not really much of a pupil. Yeah. Um, or I'm sorry, not much of an iris. Um, and the hair on the forearms is usually long. Um, you know, appearing not to have a neck, although we would know, of course, it would have seven cervical vertebra because all mammals, save sloths, uh, you know, have seven cervical vertebra. Yeah, it's just um, muscular connection, it seems yeah. to me, and then hair covering that. Yeah, you know, it doesn't have hair on its, on its feet, you know, the bottom of the soles of its feet or on its hands or, you know, kind of through here on its face, around the eyes and upper cheeks, that type of thing. Um, I mean, I, I think that we hear these reports so commonly. Like today I was listening to a podcast and a gentleman was giving a report. And when he started talking about the animal, you know, could something look drastically different? Yeah. But, you know, when you hear things repetitiously, you expect certain things. And if they say, well, hair was short on the forearms, it's like, you know, I've, you know, you've talked to a thousand witnesses. You've never heard that, that, you know, it could be real, but, you know, it's not likely probably. Um, so, you know, what, I mean, an earthworm is 65% of the same DNA as us. You know, what a chimp is 97% or something. So, you know, in likelihood, it's probably close to a human. And if not in a human line, um, you know, there's people like, you know, there's different ones around the world. In most countries, China has Yaren and, you know, the Amaste in Russia, the Yowie in Australia, the Bottomal Snowman. And some of the people believe that, uh, like, especially the Amaste in Russia, that um, it was almost some of the reports that come out there are like, almost like Neanderthal type things, sometimes with rough clothing and stuff. You know, I'm interested in it across the world, just in the sense that it seems like it maybe lays credence to that. But, you know, it's just like I'm not really interested in Loch Ness Monster. I'm just strictly a Bigfoot guy just because. I had experiences that happened to me and I continue to have experiences in the woods that I can't explain. And I know are not from the normal creatures that are out there, but it's not common. I mean, there was these two scientists from Oregon, uh, Hukin and Sullivan, and they, um, they'd had a Bigfoot sighting. They were biologists, field biologists. And so they were really trying to get a picture they were carrying, you know, because remember as the cameras, they were like that. And mm-hmm. Yeah. They carrying those around in the seventies and uh, they kept really good notes. And they said about, it, it was about 200 hours to find something each time, whether it be a footprint or some hair or a brief sighting or whatever it happened to be. And I know that when I wrote the first book, I felt like that was in line with my experience. And I was getting that about every six weeks or so. Is how many right. hours I was spending in the woods. Well then, now that I have smushed my areas down where I'm just going to three or four areas, it's not 200 hours that maybe it's 125 hours. You know, you're just more familiar with those areas, expecting certain areas where they would be. Um, 
but it's hard in the summer. Like right now, you cannot be off trail in Selesky. It's already too thick. It's, yeah. You know, in some places, but most of the places you couldn't even be off trail. There's cameras I have out in Selesky now that I know I just won't visit now until after we have some frost. Um, you know, probably right. when deer season's over and then I can go back to those deep remote places and pull the, the cameras out. Yeah. People, people who've never been around, uh, Appalachian forests don't understand the undergrowth that the briars we, that we talk about <laughs> having, you know, yeah, they don't, they don't have a clue. Yeah. Like it's, it can be pretty intense. Even the woods in Pataskala, like that had people in them all the time and were not old growth. You know, you hit a certain point in the woods and there's a wall of thorns. Mm-hmm. That yeah. like, sure, if you had some really heavy duty clothing and like a machete, you could get through, but you're going to tell everything within a 10 to 15 mile radius that you're coming and you're going to mess up the woods as you're going in and scratch the hell out of yourself. Yeah. Barbara, did you um, see that? I read a chapter in a book talking about bird language. Yes. And, um, you know, and, and what Morgana just mentioned about, you know, things being in the woods is so irritating to me because I'm conscious of it all the time. You know, the, the animals in Appalachia that we have, the birds we have in Appalachia, you know, even with the migration, you know, we still have a certain number here and they have areas about the size of a football field as their home range. Some of them may be like a blue jay, maybe two football fields. Yeah. So as you're walking through the woods, these birds are alarming as you go through each of theirs and all the animals. Now we learn that bobcats, coyotes, deer, not only do they line up so that they have the wind in their favor, but they're listening to these specific birds for their alarm calls. And the birds will even tell them, um, a lot of times, if you understand, I don't know that an animal can understand, but a human can look at it and tell whether, it's a predator on the ground, a predator on the air. It's a snake. Yep. But, you know, um, they certainly can recognize that there's something going on and the birds will tell them which way to go, you know, to be able to escape. And so the chipmunks are annoying. I hear them all the time today <laughs> I was walking through the woods. You know, you think you're being pretty quiet and they're making these noises. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's hard to, hard to get away like that you know that there's they just already know they're out there all the time and they're just better at it than we are yeah i mean i i used to go out into the woods and we used to have several acres of woods in Pataskala, and that's that's where morgana was talking about and i used to just go and sit you know i'd find my place i'd find a, a perch and i'd just sit yeah. and listen and uh do the I'm I'm just part of the woods. It's my Jedi mind trick. I'm part of the woods. I'm just sitting here. And you know, you can get the birds to calm down and all that, but yeah, I I did stop that after I had the the instance of the howling big tree shaking thing in the woods for I don't know even how long that experience was, but it was at night and it was scary. Yeah. And so I didn't go out into the woods and just kind of sit. I, I kind of let the woods know I was there after that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to sneak up on anybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, you commonly hear that, um, you know, it, it changes people's lives. You know, I started this story and I didn't finish it, but about the, uh, 
the witnesses and the, you know, and I don't want to say quality of witnesses because I don't think it's fair that you, um, you give more credence to one person that's a coal miner in West Virginia. And I wouldn't give him as much credence as a doctor or a state trooper or whatever it happens to be. But you know what I mean? When you're looking at your reports in terms of the public perception, sometimes that's just a reality. And I yeah. know that um, I, I took this report from this state policeman and I went down there and, um, you know, he had told me that he was riding his four wheeler down a path and his wife was on the back and he likes to hunt ginseng. And it was during the summer, but they were just kind of looking places where it would be later. And um, he was riding right away and he got off on another path and he said, I was putting along. And then it was like, I looked up and saw this fire burn stump. And then he said, have you ever seen one? And I said, no. And he said, people disappear all the time. And I'm not saying they do it, but you just can't imagine a size. He's like, just think of a sheet of plywood. He's like, it's that large. And it was just behind a small tree that was laughable, that it was kind of like, you know, back behind this tree. And he said that, you know, like I said, at first he thought it was a fireburn stump. He looked back and he saw it. And of course he was carrying a weapon, but he was just trying to hit reverse on his four wheeler. And his, his wife said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he's like, look, 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 look. And she just started screaming, saying, Oh my God, no. Oh my God, no. And so they got out of there and, um, you know, she had post-traumatic stress and had to get counseling and they moved from the country into the city. She would still, last time I talked to him, if she heard a noise outside at night, even though they were in a neighborhood, she would think that Bigfoot was in her neighborhood. He, when I took him back to the place at night, he cried and was chain smoking. He had another policeman with him, state policeman. They were both holding their guns out the whole time. Yeah. Thought, you know, if you're a skeptic, this gentleman saw something close, you know, 30 feet from him. And um, he doesn't care like many of the witnesses that, um, you know, when I was helping finding Bigfoot in Ohio and West Virginia and providing witnesses to them for the TV show and even being on the TV show, there's tons of people that I invited to come on that I had interviewed that didn't want to be on, whether it was just because it was TV or whether because of the notoriety of a Bigfoot thing, but they come to you and tell you what happened to them and ask you not to tell anybody. You can tell their story, but don't tell them who they are or whatever it happens to be, but they just want it off their chest. They have nothing to gain, only things to lose by talking about Bigfoot. And yet people come forward. And in Ohio, they come forward at a rate, a couple days, a couple sightings a week year round and in West Virginia, it's maybe one every couple weeks. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I, you know, it didn't stop me from going into the woods altogether. In fact, if I'd had a better flashlight, I'm, I might have stepped closer to the woods that night. But That's because you don't have sense in your head. I know. <laughs> Whatever. I really wanted to see it. <laughs> Even though I was terrified, I wanted to see what was terrifying me. The fact that Nan refused to look up is the like, no, that dog was brave. Yeah, she was afraid of it, whatever it was. There was no animal she was afraid of. She was afraid of people. She was a huge husky. And she she would not look towards the woods. She would not. She just cowered. 
Because I had gone to get her to bring her back into the house because she was close to the woods, where her doghouse was. The odds of you just being in that right place, the right time, are so small. You know, yeah. Here a few months ago, probably in the fall, I was up on this remote mountaintop and I was just looking at these miles and miles of forest, and I thought, "What are the odds?" As much as I'm out more than anybody I know. What are the odds of me bumping into something that's so rare? And yeah. uh, at that point, then I thought, you know, I had to aside from all the reports I collect from the BFRO group or from the Facebook groups or whatever it happens to be. I opened my own website just trying to collect more reports because I just thought the odds are not good. I need to skip all this. And I'm sure there's people in Southeast Ohio and West Virginia that are having experiences at their house and they suspect that something's there. And, you know, you could maybe jump to where they're staying right. at the time or whatever, rather than just hoping you get lucky, you know, on your own. Yeah. 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 When I contacted BFRO, uh, the investigator, Dan, who talked to both of us on the phone, um, he's, he called it a drive-by. You know, I, I described the terrain. You know, yeah. we'd lived there for a year and had had... You know, I was in the woods every day because that was that was my sanity was going out into the woods. And uh, I'd never seen anything that would have made me think of it. Right. It's not that I didn't know about Bigfoot. I knew darn good and well about Bigfoot, but I never thought it would be there. There was, you know, houses nearby. We weren't that far from Columbus. But, yeah. you know, I didn't think anything. And then, you know, that that howling started that night, and that was so strange. And he said, well, you know, y- you said there's a creek there with a ravine. They, it was probably following the water. And I said, that makes sense. I said, there's also cornfields right next to our, our woods, so there's food for it. Um, but no, I'd never heard anything like that, and... It was weird because after it finally was over, after my husband and I calmed down, he he and I both started listening to sound files on the internet mm-hmm. because my brain was going, it could be Bigfoot. And the other half of my brain was going, no, it's not. Stop it. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, it. well, you know, we have elk farm here, but, you know, elk don't make noises like that. They make re- weird little whistle things. Yeah. And I was like, well, you know, deer will holler when they're running yeah but not like that yeah. you know so i'm going through i'm like bears don't make that noise let's listen to a wolf no it doesn't sound like that on and on and on and then zach played one of matt moneymaker's sound files from ohio ohio how? uh-huh and i said it's that one it's that one what is it what is it he's like oh you're not gonna like my answer <laughs> i said what is it and he said Oh, it's a Bigfoot. And I was like, oh, yo, no, it's not. And he's like, yeah, some guy named Matt. I said, moneymaker. It's the Ohio Howl. And he was like, yeah, yeah, you know it? I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. So I emailed them right away and said, what is this? To but yeah, we had it, though. Yeah. You know I mean, like you were saying, like, to accept it, it's, it's this whole psychological thing. Yeah. It changes everything that you knew about the woods and what's out there and our yep. whole belief system. 
and probably the reason why I practice where I do, where I'm farm is where it's located because I'm close to those places. You know, it's shaped my where life in one way and your life in another way. And some people don't hunt, don't go into woods, or they just refuse to accept or believe whatever it is because, you know, there's, there's an issue. I mean, I, I knew there was Bigfoot, but I didn't think he was that close to our house. That was 60 feet from our house. I didn't, I don't know. That was not what I expected. There's some reports that come surprisingly close to Columbus. Just single digit miles outside. I mean, I don't think they're staying there. You know what I mean? It's not, um, it's not feasible for there to be something, you know, that doesn't have access to get away or whatever it happens to be. Um, Because surely they would have already, they've got a hit on 270 or 70 or 71 or whatever it happens. Everything gets hit on 270. But I think (laughs) at night, you know, things can travel a distance and, you know, there might be easier food that they're after whatever it happens to be. Yeah. In the seventies, there was a sighting in the Olentangy river up near Dublin, I think. Still is commonly. Yeah. Barbie Creek area. Yep. There was a a white one that was seen several times in the seventies there. Yeah, they're kind of like, you know, when you look at the hair, which I look at hair pretty often. I looked at some last week. And I just got some in the mail today. You know, we're using like a stereo microscope and a, and a uh, compound microscope, you know, professional ones that are pretty good, you know, because once again, we're looking for that type. But in general, the hair is like a, a reddish brown, a tint, yep. kind of like you would picture. You know, you'll commonly hear people say black or I think of coyote because coyote can be almost any kind of collar and you'll yep. hear Bigfoot that way. And Ohio has a history of some white ones or gray ones, but in general, they're more reddish Brown, black Brown kind of thing. You know, that's what yeah. you expect to see, but um, yeah, but there is a lot of reports that come out of, you know, just that area that's there. I mean, I think that Hawking Hills is a great area because you have those what seven parks no one's allowed off trail. Everybody's yep. on the trail. So every, everything that's out there knows right where the humans are going to be. The parks close at night. No one's allowed to be in there. And uh, there's lots of food. Yeah. Lots of food. All the people camping, all the deer that are running around or whatever it happens to be. And, well, uh, and there's just at Strouds, there's huge swaths of ramps and there's yes. may apples that, admittedly aren't edible until they're ripe, but once they're ripe, you can eat them. Yeah. You know, you have to imagine that they're making um, use of all those type of things. Um, I was trying to think of the type of tree that I found in, in West Virginia. One time I came up on three trees that were about a little bigger than your thumb that had been pulled out and placed beside each other. And, uh, you know, I was trying to do it with all my strength and I'm a pretty big guy and it's just, not something you could do, but something was able to pull it up and it's mm-hmm. it was sumac. If I remember right. Yeah. Nature used sumac for different things. Um, you know, you find commonly things in the woods, you know, once again, that you can't explain. And, you know, before I came on, we were talking about the woo factor and, you know, and woo is used to not be big in Bigfoot world. Um, now in the last seven or eight years, it's really evolved and became popular. Um, 
now. I just I foresee it continuing all the time. I think it's weird because you know we have all these people that they're never in the woods. Now they're going out two, three times in the woods a year, and they're camping out with their friends and they're frying bacon, and they're out there doing bigfoot noises or whatever it happens to be. And you know that's uh, that's an enthusiast, I would say, right? I guess I never really thought about it because I'm always troubled to what I would call myself. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not really sure I like some of the names, but (laughs) enthusiast, but now that I think about it, I think an enthusiast is just that person that's interested, but they're really just not collecting, you know, data, research, that type of thing. And, you know, I suspect that there's maybe a hundred of us in North America that are legitimately doing research on the animal, but you know, none of us are getting paid to, to do it. I mean, we may make money on books or expeditions, but it's not like you're living on Bigfoot. No. Yeah. And There's that's just what I think, no you know, way. Whatever came out, uh, Morgana, what you said is the academics will come out of the classroom, the ones that said nothing like that could exist, but they're all soft and feral, the um, professors, and they'll be allowed to go places where none of us could go like these preserves or uh, water supply areas that they don't allow people in they patrol and they'll have money and they'll have the very best equipment and they'll be paid to be there for long periods of time. And yeah. a lot of them will not have ever been in the woods and are going to step on a copperhead. There you go. And they won't like it. <laughs> yeah. If they were sensible, they'd take some of y'all with them, but you know, <laughs> Yeah, I hope they will. Honestly, yeah, because it would too. be a shame to not use the data that's already there and yeah, expertise and that's already, already know there. what they're doing. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are doing stuff. A lot of groups. Uh, you know, they found some nests out in the Pacific Northwest last year. You know, a lot of us are doing environmental DNA studies. <laughs> North Carolina State's getting ready to start some DNA studies on Bigfoot stuff. And um, there's camera projects. At one point, there was one group that had over 100 cameras that they were manning. Um, There's tons of people doing long-duration recording where they are recording every night. The recorders click on it. You know, it's 9 at night, and they go till 6 in the morning, and they have um, all the, the noises scientifically analyzed. There was just one group that just put out you know, all their recordings from the last year that they had and exactly what birds and what animals were heard and what animals were not able to be identified and at what elevation they were commonly and what time it commonly is. You know, so everybody just keeps adding to this. And now see, that's yeah. that's useful for any biologist, any wildlife biologist, not just somebody who's interested in Bigfoot. That's telling you what animals are where, what birds are where, when they're active, I think that's fascinating. One of the things that I've been looking at is, you know, I told you that I have a wide ranging thing of, you know, I'm just interested in a lot of different things. I read the higher primate stuff, you know, and I just finished the book on black bears in Idaho. And so one of the things that I've been pondering is how do two omnivores that are large coexist in the same area without existing each other's food supply. Um, You know, because largely that was the first argument that anthropologists used to make against Bigfoot 
was the fact that they believed that, you know, you only had one animal occupying each place. Right. In the chain. But then, of course, now in the last 10 years, that's changed. And we recognize that that's not reasonable. It's not what happens in nature any longer. But, you know, I thought it was interesting, like, for instance, uh, bears tend to den when they den in the winter and they're hibernating. It's on the north hillside, whereas Bigfoot, we tend to find in colder weather on the south facing hillsides. The least active time for bears to be active is between one and four in the morning, which is generally accepted that while Bigfoot is active other times, but one to four is probably the most common time for them to be active. So are they doing that so that they just don't encounter each other that much? Probably. You know, but I, imagine, I imagine a bear could do a bit of damage to a younger Bigfoot. Yeah, I'd say that, uh, you know, they've been around each other for eons, generations. So, you know, they know how to deal with each other. They probably just avoid each other. Yeah. Um, they've got a truce going on you know you yeah. have that half of the mountain i have this half i have this part of the yeah. night you have that part we're yeah. all cool and that's how it's <laughs> largely worked out so you know i think that we need to look at these other animals and how they relate to the forest how they might relate to bigfoot for instance we know that um bobcat population um uh, is directly proportional to the rabbit population. Yep. The more rabbits we have, the more bobcats we have. And so, you know, we need to visit these other animals that are in the woods and determine, um, you know, what type of relationship there is to be, and then continue that to add that in with our evidence and see, you know, what it's all going to be. Just like with my cameras, you know, I want a picture of Bigfoot, certainly, but now I'm paying attention to times when, um, the woods are disrupted. The animals are usually there that every single day I see the same 18 to 21 deer, but I had this one week in September where there's no deer on my camera at all. And so, you know, I know something's going on in the woods then, you know, I think that uh, Bigfoot probably hears the cameras. They're about 30 decibels. So small kids can, you know, we know that uh, alpha male coyotes generally don't get shot very much on game cameras. They hear them um, when they did the uh, Siberian tiger studies. Oh, yeah. You know, they, uh, of course, there was a book somewhere over here on my shelf. It was um, The Great Soul of Siberia. Yeah. And we had no, we had one picture of a Siberian tiger. It's, it's 10 feet long. Yeah. And we had one picture, but it took a guy six months living in a little concrete tomb and not leaving there. And sleeping there, no heat, no nothing, to be able to get pictures of this animal. And he put out 32 game cameras. The tigers found 31 of them, or 30 of them, and attacked them from behind. Yep, so, they're know, not dumb. It was probably hearing that noise, you know, just what I'm talking about. So recognizing that while we can't get a picture, maybe a Bigfoot, or unless we get lucky or something, it's a fluke picture, whatever it happens to be. You know, maybe we have a setup now where I'm paying attention to creek noise. And I only place a camera if I can get something to disguise the noise. Makes sense. Yeah. Do that on Raccoon Creek, which runs through Vinton County. You know, um, it's a very, very deep creek. Nothing can really get across it very well. Yeah. So you know, I'll pick several spots where the creek's a little louder. If it looks like a spot where things would come down on the other side, 
just hoping to disguise that noise, but choosing different avenues to be able to um, get Bigfoot data without the necessary contact with the animal. Like yeah. considering what the other animals do, like we were talking about that may exist with them, bears, how does that affect them? Using game cameras, but using game cameras to block areas to keep something from moving to one area by putting cameras out, paying attention to what the animals, um, how they're behaving in that area now that you have all those camera in there so you can know. Um, you know, considering all these things, keeping a history of the reports. Um, but only the good reports because many of the reports that get sent to me, I just don't believe are Bigfoot related or pictures. I'll say, no, that's a bird. The next week it's a some newspaper, some magazine is a big possible Bigfoot picture when you've already said, no, that probably wasn't what it was. And there's people there's- that have books in Ohio that, you know, they have tons of reports in there that are people that I've already talked to. And I just didn't find the story compelling. In terms right. But, you know, the standard is, you know, it's largely citizen science that's out there right now. It's usually not scientists that are doing the work. You know, so we have to hold our standards a little higher. I mean, it's fun to tell ghost stories, but, you know, when we're trying to legitimately um, claim that something may be out there, you know, our standard has to be high. Yeah. 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 No, I, I agree with that. It's, uh, I, I do, I think though that the kinds of clever ways of using the equipment that you do have access to, like game cameras and sound recorders, I think that's valuable, not just, again, like I said, for Bigfoot, but for all sorts of other wildlife studies. And, uh, you know, maybe if you get some data for a couple of scientists, they might maybe listen to you (laughs) maybe care enough to listen and maybe you know who's to say yeah (laughs) if if bigfoot's found and suddenly all of the academics are rushing to the woods they'll have sense enough to take some of y'all with them that's what stone man was stone man was a book that was supposed to be an easy read that you know when i listed the five different things that bigfoot could be that, you know, it was a couple paragraphs when I could have done a chapter on each one, but I just wanted something that people at the end of the book would look at it and say, you know, I don't know, but maybe, and it seems reasonable that people should be, you know, because I didn't think that because we were talking about earlier, people have busy lives and are doing their stuff and no one's really sitting down and considering those, those things. And some of the scientists that are around, you know, they're saying that the younger generation of scientists are very open to the idea of something being out there. There's a new book that an anthropologist just wrote talking about, um, you know, he believed that there was still relic hominids around that had not been found. Um, So, you know, there's people doing other things, but I think the older generation of scientists need to retire. And then we'll start to see maybe that younger generation coming in that, more open-minded yeah Yeah. well we have been talking for a little longer than normal um i just saw anything you got anything else you want to throw out there um no i would say that uh if someone wants to send me a report uh, my website is thebigfootdoc.com 
they can find me there. Um, there's links to both the books there. The books are on Amazon, Tracking the Stone Man and the Appalachian Bigfoot. Um, you know, if they have a report they want to send me or tell me a story, you know, they can find me uh, on Twitter. I'm the Bigfoot Doc. Uh, I'm on Facebook. You know, just look up Russ Jones and, um, you know. That's how we found you. There you go. If you're interested in, um, you know, hearing other podcasts that I've done or magazine articles and stuff, they can just usually put Dr. Jones Bigfoot in and there'll be a lot of stuff come up on the internet. Cool. um, You know, and I always promise everybody that, you know, I'll treat them the same way that I treat my patients. Anything that they tell me, I won't share with the public unless they give me um, permission. And, you know, I'll always, uh, keep their secret. Excellent. It's, it's the way it should be. Well, thank you. And, and, uh, so much. If you ever, you know, want to hang out sometime, you're always welcome to come for dinner. That's what I, I, thank you. Know, I get people with, but you're, you're local. So, like, yeah, seriously, so come to dinner. Yeah. That's, right. That's easy. <laughs> I used to be a chef and she's still a line cook. So, you know, it'll taste good. Wow. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thanks, guys, for having me. I appreciate thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you. And we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you.